0: In the is- interest of time, I'm going to go ahead and start our program this afternoon. Um, this is our Halloween-themed Read Aloud, and um, we're very fortunate to have um, Marianne Walter-Kiesel and her son, Kenny Walter-Kiesel, as our readers. Kenny's coming from school. He's a high school st- senior, or junior, and um, he's on his way, so he'll, he'll be joining the program shortly. Um, I'm going to let Marianne go ahead and introduce her selection since she's very familiar with the author and uh, can tell you some interesting stories about him. I apologize in advance for the cafe noise. You're welcome to move up. There's plenty of seats up here with me. And there's also coffee available and read aloud magnets. If you'd like to be notified of future programs, there's a sign-up sheet in the back. Thanks for coming out, everybody
1: were the ancients that dug the mine holes in the Tow river country and what were they after and did they find it nobody knows what makes the lights come and go like fireflies every night on brown mountain and you'll never see a man exactly six feet tall because that was the height of the lord jesus christ and the farmer who next to me was the youngest there mentioned love and courtin and how when you true love someone and need your eyes and thoughts clearest, they missed up and maybe make you trouble That led us to how you stepped down a mule line, stalked toward your true love's house, and if it grows up again, she loves you. And how the girls used to have dumb suppers, setting plates and knives and forks on the table at night, and each girl standing behind a chair, put ready till at midnight the candles blew out, and the girl saw, or she thought she saw a ghostly looking somebody in the chair before her, and that was the appearance of the somebody she'd marry. Knew of dumb suppers when I was just a chap, allowed the shopkeeper. But most of the old folks then, they didn't relish the notion. Said it was a devil-made idea, and you might call it something better left outside. Ain't no such goings-on in this day and time, nodded the farmer. I don't take stock in them crazy sayings and doings. Back where I was born and raised, in the drowning creek country, I'd heard tell of dumb suppers, but I'd never seen one, so I held my tongue. But the deputy grinned his teeth at the farmer. You plant by the moon, don't you, he asked. Above ground things like corn at the fool and underground things like taters in the dark. That ain't foolishness, that's the true way, the farmer said back. Ask anybody's got a lick of sense about farming. Then a big, wiggling, 3 fork flash of lightning struck. It didn't seem more than an arm's length off and the thunder was like the falling in of the hills. "Law me, said the old gentleman whose name seemed to be Mr. J. That was a hooter. Sure God it was, the farmer agreed. Old Forney Meacham wants us to remember that he makes the rain around here. My ears up like a rabbit's. I did hear this is the old Meacham-Donovan feud country, I said. I've always been wanting to hear the true tale of that. Uh, What about Forney Meacham making the rain? Isn't he dead? Deader than hell, the storekeeper told me. Though folks never thought he could die, thought he'd just ugly away. But him and all the Meacham and Donovan men got killed. Both the names plum died out, I reckon. Yonder in the valley so low where you see the rain a fallen the lavishest. I used to hear about it when I was just a chap. Me too, nodded the deputy. The way I got it, Forney Meacham went somewheres west when he was young. Was with the James boys or the younger boys or maybe someone not quite so respectable. And when he came back, took up the shopkeeper again, he could make rain whenever it suited him. How, I asked, and old Mr. J was listening too. Ain't rightly certain how, said the farmer. They tell me he used to mix up mud in a hole and sing a certain song. Ever hear such a song as that, John? I shook my head, no, and he went on. Forty Meacham done scarier things than that. He witched wells dry, and he raised up dead ghosts to show him where treasure was hid. Even his own kinfolks was scared of him. And all the Meachams took orders from him. So when he fell out with Captain Sam Donovan over a property line, he made them break with all the Donovans. Fact, said the storekeeper, who wanted to tell part of the tale. And then Meachams did what he told them, saving only his cousin's oldest girl, Miss Luke Meacham. She swore eternal love with Captain Ben Donovan's second boy, Jeremiah. Another lightning flashed, another thunder growl. Old Mr. J. hunched his thin shoulders under his jeans coat and allowed he'd pay for some cheese and crackers if the storekeeper'd fetch him out. Law me, said the farmer, I ain't even now wanting to talk against Forney Meacham. But they tell he put his eye on Loot himself, and he quarreled with his own son, Derwood, about who'd have her. But the next court day at the county seat was a fight between Jeremiah Donovan and Derwood Meacham, and Jeremiah stuck a knife in Derwood and killed him dead. Mr. Jay leaned forward in the lantern light. It showed the gray stubble on his gentle old face. Who drew the first knife, he asked. I heard tell that Derwood drew the knife, and Jeremiah took it away and stuck it into him, said the farmer. Anyway, Jeremiah Donovan had to run from the law, and down into the valley, yonder, the Meachams and the Donovans began a-shooting at each other. Fact, said the storekeeper, and took it up again as he fetched out the cheese and crackers. That was 50 years back, the last fight of all. Every man on both sides was killed, down to boys of 10, 12 years. Old Forney called for rain, but somebody shot him just as he got it started. And it falls right much to this day, said the farmer, gazing at the poor from the poor chiefs. That valley below us is so rainy, it's a swamp-like. And the widows and orphans that was left alive, both families, they was purely rained out and went other places to live. What about Miss Lute Meacham, I asked next? I wondered about her, too, said Mr. J. Died, said the storekeeper. Some folks said it was pure down grief killed her. And that, that and the lonesomeness from that runoff Jeremiah Donovan... I likewise heard tell old Forney shot her when she said for once and all she wouldn't have him. The deputy sipped his soda. All done and passed now, he said. Looks like we rained in here for all night, gentlemen. But we weren't. It slacked off a while we ate our cheese, and then it was just a drip from the branches. The cloud shredded, the moon poked through a moment shy like a girl at his, her first party. The deputy got up from the slab bench where he'd been sitting. Hope my truck will wallow up that muddy road to town, he said. Who can I carry with me? I got my mule, added the farmer. I'll follow along and snake you out when you get stuck down one of them mud holes. John, you better ride with me, you and Mr. J. I shook my head. I'm not going to town, thank you kindly. I'm going down that valley trail. Swore to an old family friend I'd be at his reunion up in the hills on yonder side by supper time tomorrow. Mr. J said he'd be going that way too the storekeeper offered to let us sleep in his feed shed but I said I'd better start coming sir I asked mr. old Jay after a while he told me so I went on alone three minutes down the trail between those wet dark trees and the lantern light under the porch was gone as if it had never shone. gentlemen it was lonesome dark and damp going I felt my muddy way along with my broken shoes squashy full of water And yet sometimes it wasn't as lonesome as you might call for. There were soft noises like whispers or crawlings. And once there was a howl not too far away, like a dog or maybe a man trying to sound like a dog, or maybe neither of them. For my own comfort, I began to pick the guitar and sing to myself, but the wrong tune had come unbidden. In the pines, in the pines, where the sun never shines, and I shiver when the wind blows cold, I stopped when I got that far, it was too much the truth, and it came on to rain again. I hauled off my old coat to wrap my guitar from it. Not much to see ahead, but I knew I kept going down the slope and down slope, and no way of telling how far down it went before it would start to go up to the hills where my friend's kinfolk would gather tomorrow. I told myself I was gone gump not to stay at the store, the way I had been so kindly bid. I hoped that old Mr. J had the sense to stay undercover. But it was too far to go back. I better find some place out of the wet for my guitar, more for me. Must have been a bend to that trail, because I came all at once in view of the light in the cabin's glass window before I notioned that there was any living place around. The light looked warm and yellow in the rain, and I hastened my my wet feet. Close enough in, I could judge it was an old log-made house, the corners notch-locked and the logs clay-chinked, and the whiteys with thick split shakes on them. But I couldn't really see. Hello, the house, I yelled out. No sound back. Maybe the rain was keeping them from hearing me. I felt my way to the flat doorstone and knocked. No stir inside. Groping for a knob, I found none, only a leather latch string, old style. And old style, it was out. In my grandsire's day, a latch string out meant come in. In I pulled, and the wooden latch lifted inside, and the door swung before me. The room was lit from a fireplace full of red coals and from a candle stuck in a dish and a table midway off the punching floor. That table took my eye as I stepped in. A cloth on it and a plate of old white china with a knife and a fork at the sides and a cup and a saucer. Yes, and a folded napkin, but no food on the table, no coffee in the cup, a chair was set to the plate, and behind the chair, her hands crossed on its back, stood a woman, young and tall and proud standing. She didn't move. Nothing moved except the candle flame and the stir of the air from the open door. She might have been cut from wood and put down there to fool folks. I closed the door against the hard drum of the rain and tracked wet marks on the puncheons as I came toward the table. I took off my old hat, and the water fell from it. Good evening, ma'am, I said. Then her dark eyes moved in her pale face, her sweet, firm jawed face, her short, sad mouth opened slow and shaky. You're not, she started to mumble half to herself. I didn't mean. There was copper light moving in her hair as she bent her head down and looked down to the empty plate. Then I remembered that talk under the store porch. Dumb supper, I said. I'm right sorry. The rain drove me in here. I reckon this is the only house around, and when nobody answered, I walked in. I didn't mean to bother you. And I couldn't help but look at how she'd set the dumb supper out. Knowing how such things weren't done anymore, I was hearing that very thing said that night. I was wondering to find it. Through my mind kept running how some scholar men say it's a way of doing things that came over from the old country, where dumb suppers were set clear back to the beginning of time. Things that old don't die easy after all, I reckon. He'll still come and sit down, she said to me in her soft voice, like a low-playing flute heard far off. I've called him and he'll come. I hung my wet coat by the fireplace and she saw my guitar. Sing to help guide him, she said to me. I looked at her so proudly tall behind the chair. She wore a long green dress and her eyes were darker than her copper hair that was all in curly ringlets. Sing, she said again. Toll him here. I felt like doing whatever she told me. I swung the guitar in front of me and began the song I'd given for them at the store. Oh, call me, sweetheart, call me, dear, call me what you will. Call me from the valley low, call me from the hill. I hear you as the turtle dove that flies from bow to bow, and as she softly calls her mate, you call me softly now. One long hand waved me to stop, and I stopped with the silver strings still whispering to both of us. I felt my ears close up tight, the way they feel when you climbed high, high on the mountaintop. There's power working here, I said. Yes, she barely made herself heard. The fire that had been just coals found something to blaze up on. Smoke rose dark above the bright flames. The rain outside came barreling down, and there was a rising wind, too, with a hoop and a shove to it that made the lock joints of the cabin's log creak. Sounds like old Forney Meacham's at work, I tried to make half-joke, but she didn't take it as such. Her dark, bright eyes lifted their lids to widen, and her hands on the chair back again took hold hard. Forney didn't want me to do this, she told me, as if it was my ordinary business. He's dead, I reminded her like to a child. No, she shook her copper head. He's not dead, not all of him, not all of me neither. I wondered what she meant, and I stepped away from the fire that was burning bright and hot. Are you a Meacham or a Donovan, I asked. A Meacham, she told me, but my true love's a Donovan. Like Lube Meacham and Jeremiah Donovan? You know about that. Her hands trembled a mite for all they held so tight to the chair. Who are you? My name's John. I touched the strings to make them whisper again. Yes, I know the tale about the feud. Old Thorny Meacham could witch down the rain. Said, Lut Meacham mustn't have Jeremiah. He's here, she cried out with all her loud voice at last. The wind shook like a di- the cabin like a dice box. The shakes on the roof must have ruffled up worse than a hen's feathers. Up jumped the fire and out winked the candle. Jumping myself, I was back against the logs of the wall, my free hand on a shelf plank that was wedged there. The rain had wetted the clay clinking and and soft between the logs, and a muddy trickle fell on my fingers. I was watching the fire, and its dirty gray smoke stirred and swelled, and a fat-looking puff of it came crawling out like a living thing. The smoke stayed in one bunch, and it hung there, a sort of egg-shaped chunk of it hanging above the stones of the hearth. I think the girl must have half fallen, then caught herself, for I heard the legs of the chair scrape on the puncheons. The smoke molded itself in what light I could make out and looked solid and shapy, as tall as me but thicker, and two streamy coils waved out in the air like arms. Don't, the girl was begging something, don't let him. On the shelf at my hand stood a dish and an empty old bottle, the kind of bottle the old glassmakers blew a hundred years ago. I took up the dish in my right fist. I saw that the smoke shape drifted in sort of slow and greedy. Clear from the hearth and between those two wavy, streamy arm coils rose up a lumpy thing like a head. There was enough firelight to see that the smoke was thicker than just smoke. It must have had soot and ash dust in it, solid enough to choke you. And in that lumpy head hung two dull sparks for the eyes. Gentlemen, more about it than that, you'll not care to have me tell you. I flung the dish, and it went singing through the room, and it went straight for where I threw, but it didn't stop. It sailed right on past into the fireplace, and I heard it smash to pieces on the stones. Where it had hit the smoke shape, there showed a notchy hole all the way through where the cheek would have been on a living creature. And whatever it was I'd thrown at, it never stopped. It slow drift over to the table, gray and thick, and horrible and in the chimney the wind stomped up and down like a dasher in a churn no the girl wailed again i moved back dragging the chair along with her then at once i saw what was in whatever that thing had for a mind and i ran at the table too passing so close to one of the smoke streamers that the wind i made flooded it like a rag Just as it slid toward the chair, bending to sit down, I slapped my guitar across the seat with the silver strings up. I'd figured it right. It couldn't touch silver, being an evil haunt. It moved behind the table, and its sparks flickered at us both. I felt a creeping, hot, smelly sense like dirty smoke. It made me feel sick and shake-legged, but I made my eyes look back at those two glaring sparks. Are you, Forney Meacham, I asked at it, Want to sit down at this dumb supper? Think it was laid out for you? It swayed back and forth like a tree branch, and outside the rain fell in bucketfuls. I moved quick around the table with the guitar held toward it. I thought it moved slow, but it was across the room on the other side the way a shadow flings itself when you move the lamp. I ran after it quick and got to the floor, to the door first. Not out this way, I yelled, and jabbed a finger into the wet clay chinkin' between the logs. I quick marked a cross on the inside of the door planks. Then the Forty Meacham thing was slidin' at the window. Not that way either, I shoot it back with the guitar and sketched a cross on the glass pane. Then the waving arm streaks and the lumpy cloud of a head and the body were sliding back at the table. Light the candle, I hollered to the girl, light it. She heard and she grabbed the candle up from the table. She ran across the floor, the cloud hovering after her. Then she was down on one knee, shoving the candle into the fireplace, and it quick lighted up. And there wasn't any smoke shape anywhere in the room we saw, plain. Where did he go, she asked me. I looked around to see. He hadn't left by the door or the window, for I'd made my crosses there. He ran, I said, ran before us like a scared eyed cow. But he was strong, she started to say. He was bad, I put in, not very mannerly. Badness thinks it's strong, but it's scared of lights and crosses and silver. Taking my guitar, I picked at the silver strings, and in the music I made, walked around the room and around again, looking for what was left of Forna must be somewhere hiding. And we'd better find out where he hid, or he might be out at us again when we weren't ready. I glanced in the corners, up in the rafters, then at the shelf, then I glanced at the shelf twice. The old bottle that stood there, it was dark looking like muddy water. Or like muddy water, and in the muddy water maybe a hiding thing. Like what can hide in such a place? A snake, or worse thing than a snake, waiting its time. I, don't want to, I didn't want her to see then, so I made up something quick. Look over in the corner yonder, I said to her, take the candle. She moved to look, and I moved to follow her. Close against the wall, I scooped up a lump of clay from the chinkin and a wet glob as big as my thumb. I was within a long reach of the shelf. The corner, I said, pointing, and quick as I could make it, I jammed that clay down on top of the open bottleneck and shoved it in like a cork. What? She began to say. I picked up the bottle. It felt warm and tingly. In the candlelight, we could see the thick, dark, boiling cloud inside, stirring and spinning, and fighting every which way with no way out I took the candle and dripped wax on the clay and on the wax I marked a cross with my thumbnail remember the Arabian Nights book I asked she shook her head no it's foreign isn't it has a thousand and one stories I said and one of them tells how a haunt was tricked into a bottle like this one and sealed away forever four meet safe in there she moved with the candle and put it on the table She pushed the chair back into place and stood behind it in her green dress, straight and tall and proud, the way I'd first seen her. Now he can come, she said to me, very sure. Jeremiah. Jeremiah Donovan, I bubbled out. Who else, she said. He's coming back to me after all these years. I feel him coming. Then I said, but I didn't have to say it. I knew who she was by now. I told you I wasn't all dead, Reminded Luke Meacham for shot me in the heart and flung me in a grave, but I couldn't die I just lay there till I knew Jeremiah was headed back here for me I got my coat from beside the fireplace. It felt funny to be in that cabin With one haunt inside the bottle and one standing behind the chair Thank you for everything John she said old folksy mannerly. Thank you kindly you could go now. It's all right the door squeaked open and out of the night came one of the wettest people you ever could call for. His shoulders and pant legs were soaked. Water dripped from his white hair and his old man's chin. Mr. Jay," I greeted him. Jeremiah, Luke greeted him. He walked across paying me no mind. I had to come, he said to her, and the candle went out again. But I could see him sink down in the chair. And the light from the fireplace made his face look all of a sudden not old anymore. He put up his face, and she put hers down. And he went all slack and limp, restful. I was outside with the bottle and guitar. There was nary a cloud in the sky, and the moon shone down like a ball of white fire. The cabin was dark inside now, and I could see by the moon that it was a ruined wreck. The roof fallen in, the window broken, the logs rotten. You'd swear nobody'd set foot in there for 50 years back. But inside, Jeremiah, Donovan, and Luke Meacham were together at last and peaceful. So peaceful, most folks would think they were dead and gone. On along the trail that was now so clear, I found a tree that looked hollow, and down in its dark inside, I put the bottle and left it there. It seemed to me I ought to be shaky and scared, but I wasn't. I felt right good. That dumb supper now, the way I'd heard it said... Sometimes a dumb supper calls up things that oughtn't to be there, but now I'd seen a dead haunt setting a dumb supper to toll a living man to her. And it wasn't bad. It wasn't wrong. They were happy about it, and I knew that. Walking in the bright moonlight, I began to strum my guitar, and, gentlemen, the song I sang is really an old song. Beauty, strength, youth are flowers and fade and scene. Duty, faith, love are roots and evergreen.
2: and Strange and Mr. Norrell by Susanna Clark. It was put out in the last five years or so and it's about huh, what happens when during the middle of the Napoleonic War two, huh, two magicians appear in England and try to revive the tradition of English magic. And the particular huh, passage that I'm going to be reading is from a point later on in the story where <laughs> one of the two, named Jonathan Strange, <laughs> has been hired by the Queen of England to try and cure her husband's madness, and strange things begin to happen.
1: I hope it fell. So I hope the bookmarks are
2: still. It's fine. The king did not seem in the least fatigued. In fact he more inclined he seemed more inclined to dance and skip about, and generally rejoice over the defeat of the Willises. So, thinking that further exercise would certainly do his Majesty no harm, Strange walked on. The white mist had erased all detail and all colour from the landscape, and left it ghostly. Earth and sky were blended together in the same insubstantial gray element. The king took strange his arm in a most affectionate manner and seemed to have quite forgotten that he disliked magicians. He began to walk about, <laughs> walk about and talk about the things that had preoccupied him in his madness. He, had, he was convinced that a great many disasters had befallen Great Britain since he had become mad. He seemed to imagine that the wreck of his own reason must be matched by a corresponding wreck of the kingdom. Chief among these delusions was the belief that London had been drowned in a great flood. And when they came to me and said that the cold gray waters had enclosed over the dome of St. Paul's Cathedral, and that London was become a domain for fishes and sea monsters, my feelings were not to be described. I believe I wept for three weeks together. Now the buildings are all covered in barnacles, and the markets sell nothing but oysters and sea urchins. Mr. Fox told me that three Sundays ago, he went to St. Vedast in Foster Lane, where he heard an excellent sermon preached by a turbot. But I'm, I have a plan for my kingdom's restoration. I have dispatched ambassadors to the King of the Fishes with. Proposals that I should marry a mermaid and so end the strife between our two great nations. The other subject which preoccupied his majesty was that of the silver-haired person whom only he could see. He says he is a king, whispered, he whispered eagerly, but I believe he is an angel. With all that silver hair, I think it very likely, and those two evil spirits the one you you were talking about, he has been abusing them most horribly. It is my belief he has come to smite them and cast them into a fiery pit. Then, no doubt, he will carry you and me away to glory in Hanover. Heaven, said Strange. Your Majesty means heaven. They walked on. Snow began to fall. A slow tumble of white over a pale gray world. It was very quiet. Suddenly, the sound of a flute was heard. The music was unutterably lonely and mournful, but at the same time full of nobility. Thinking that it must be the king who was playing, Strange turned to watch, but the king was standing with his hands at his side and his flute in his pocket. Strange looked around. The mist was not dense enough to hide anyone who might have been standing near them. There was no one. The park was empty. Ah, listen, cried the king. He is describing the tragedy of the King of Great Britain. That run of notes there, that is for the past powers all gone. That melancholy phrase, that is for his reason destroyed by deceitful politicians and the wicked behavior of his sons. That little tune fit to break your heart, that is for the beautiful young creature, whom he adored when he was a boy and was forced by his friends to give up. Ah, God, how he wept then. Tears rolled down the king's face. He began to perform a slow, grave dance, waving his body and his arms from side to side and spinning slowly over the ground. The music moved away, deeper into the park, and the king danced after it. Strange was mystified. The music seemed to be leading the king into the direction of a grove of trees. At least, Strange had supposed it was a grove. He was almost certain that a moment ago he had seen a dozen trees, probably fewer, but now the grove had become a thicket. No, a wood. A deep, dark wood, where the trees were ancient and wild. Their grape branches resembled twisted limbs, and their roots tumbling nests of snakes. They were twined about thickly with ivy and mistletoe. There was a little path between the trees. It was pitted with deep, ice-rimmed hollows that fringed with frost-stiffened weeds. Pale pinpricks of light deep within the woods suggested a house where no house ought to be. Your Majesty, cried Strange. He ran after the king and caught him by the hand. Your majesty must forgive me, but I do not quite like the look of those trees. I think perhaps we should be as well to return to the castle. The king was quite enraptured by the music and did not wish to leave. He grumbled and pulled his arm away from Strange's grasp. Strange caught him again and half led, half-dragged him back towards the gate. But the invisible flute player did not seem inclined to give them up so easily. The music suddenly grew louder. It was all around them. Another tune crept in, almost imperceptibly, and blended sweetly with the first. Ah, listen, oh, listen, cried the king, spinning round. He is playing for you now. That harsh melody is for your wicked tutor, who will not teach you what you have every right to learn. Those discordant notes describe your anger at being prevented from making new discoveries. That slow, sad march is for the great library he is too selfish to show you. How in the world? Began Strange, and then stopped. He heard it too, the music that described his whole life. He realized for the first time how full of sadness his existence was. He was surrounded by mean-spirited men and women who hated him and were secretly jealous of his talent. He knew now that every angry thought he had ever had was justified and that every generous thought was misplaced. His enemies were despicable and his friends were treacherous. Norel, his tutor, naturally, was worst of all, but even Arabella, his wife, was weak and unworthy of his love. Ah, sighed his majesty, so you have been betrayed too. Yes, said Strange, sadly. They were facing the wood again. The lights among the trees, tiny as they were, conveyed to Strange a strong idea of the house and its comforts. He could almost see the soft candlelight falling upon the comfortable chairs. The ancient hearths were cheerful blazes. fires blazed. The glasses of hot... Spiced wine, which would be provided to warm them after their walk through the dark, would. White suggested other ideas, too. I think there is a library, he said. Oh, certainly, declared the king, clapping his hands together in his enthusiasm. You shall read the books, and when your eyes grow tired, I shall read them to you. But we must hurry. Listen to the music. He grows impatient for us to follow. His Majesty reached out to take Strange's left arm. In order to accommodate this, Strange found that he must remove something he was holding in his hand. It was a book, Omskirk's Revolution, Revelations on 36 Other Worlds. Oh, that, he thought. Well, I do not need that any longer. There are sure to be better books in the house in the wood. He opened his hand and let Revelations fall upon the snowy ground. The snow fell thicker. The flute player played. They hurried towards the wood. As they ran, the king's scarlet nightcap fell over his eyes. Strange reached up and straightened it. As he did so, he suddenly remembered what it was he knew about the color red. It was powerful protection against enchantment. Hurry, hurry, cried the king. The flute player played a series of rapid notes which rose and fell to mimic the sound of the wind. A real wind appeared out of nowhere, and half-lifted, half-pushed them over the ground towards the wood. When it set them down again, they were a great deal nearer to the wood. Excellent, cried the king. The nightcap caught Strange's eye again. Protection against enchantment. The flute player conjured up another wood, and this one blew the king's nightcap off. No matter, no matter, cried the king cheerfully. He has promised me nightcaps plenty when we get to his house. But Strange let go of the king's arm and staggered back through the wind and snow to fetch it. It lay in the snow, bright scarlet among all the misty shades of white and gray. Protection against enchantment. He remembered saying to one of the Willises that in order to practice magic, Successfully, a magician must employ the forcefulness of his own character. Why should he think of that now? Place the moon at, he, at my eyes, he thought. Her whiteness shall devour the false sights the deceiver has placed there. The moon's scarred white disc appeared suddenly, not in the sky, but somewhere else, as if he had been obliged to say exactly where, He would have said that it was inside his own head. The sensation was not at all a pleasant one. All he could think of, all he could see was the moon's face, like a sliver of ancient bone. He forgot about the king. He forgot he was a magician. He forgot Mr. Norell. He forgot his own name. He forgot everything except the moon. The moon vanished. Strange looked up and found himself in a snowy place, a little distance from a dark wood. Between him and the wood stood the blind king in his dressing gown. The king must have walked on when he stopped, but without his guide to lean on, the king felt lost and afraid. He was crying out, Magician, magician, where are you? The wood no longer struck Strange as a welcoming place. It appeared to him now as it had at first, Sinister, unknowable, un-English. As for the lights, he could barely see them. They were the merest pricks of white in the darkness and suggested nothing except that the inhabitants of the house could not afford many candles. Magician, cried the king. I am here, your majesty. Place a swarm of bees at my ears, he thought. Bees love truth and will destroy the deceiver's lies. A low murmuring noise filled his ears, blocking out the music of the flute player. It was very like language and strange thought that in a little while he would understand it. It grew, filling his head and his chest to the very tips of his fingers and toes. Even his hair seemed electrified, and his his skin buzzed and shook with the noise. For one horrible moment, he thought that his mouth was full of bees, and that they were b- bees buzzing and flying under his skin, in his guts, and his ears. The buzzing stopped. Strange heard the flute player's music again, but it did not sound as sweet as before, and it no longer seemed to be describing his life. Place salt in my mouth, he thought, lest the deceiver attempt to delight me with the taste of honey, or disgust me with the taste of ashes this part of the spell had no effect whatsoever nail my hand with an iron nail so that i shall not raise it to do the deceiver's bidding ah god screamed strange there was an excruciating pain in the palm of his left hand when it ceased as suddenly as it began he no longer felt compelled to hurry towards the wood Place my heart in a secret place so that all my desires shall be my own and the deceiver shall find no hold there. He pictured Arabella as he had seen her a thousand times, prettily dressed and seated in a drawing room among a crowd of people who were all laughing and talking. He gave her his heart. She took it and placed it quietly in the pocket of her gown. No one observed what she did. Strange next applied the spell to the king, and at the last step, he gave the king's heart to Arabella to keep in her pocket. It was interesting to observe the magic from the outside. There had been so many unusual occurrences in the king's poor head that the moon's sudden appearance there seemed to, (coughs) on occasion, him no surprise. But he did not care for the bees. He was brushing them away for some time afterwards. When the spell was finished, the flute player abruptly ceased playing. And now, your majesty, said Strange, I think it is time we returned to the castle. You and I, your majesty, are a British king and a British magician. Though Great Britain may desert us, we have no right to desert Great Britain. She may have need of us yet. True, true, I swore an oath at my coronation, always to serve her. Oh, my poor country. The king turned and waved in the direction he supposed the mysterious flute player to be. Goodbye, goodbye, dear sir. God bless you for your kindness to George III. Revelations of 36 other worlds lay half covered up by the snow. Strange picked it up and brushed off the snow. He looked back. The dark wood was gone. In its place was a most innocent clump of Five leafless beech trees.
0: laugh thank you. Thank, you. thank
2: you yes I saw